So our scripture reading is uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Don really should have just closed his eyes. <laughs> He's got it down so much. All right. Um, so this is... Uh, what we've often uh, called the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of a model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus is teaching them how to pray, teaching the disciples how to pray. And he says that they are to pray, and therefore we're to seek as his disciples the coming, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, the Father's kingdom. As we've pointed out already, and I'm sure this will come up again and again throughout the year, the word kingdom, we shouldn't think of it as like some castle or something like that. It's basically the, the idea of his rule, his sovereignty. Maybe it's better to think of it as his kingship. You know, he, he's in charge of everything. Ourselves, his kingship applies to our church. It applies to the whole world. And so we're going to spend the... the, the the year of 2024, Lord willing, pondering what kingship, God's kingship, entails. Its many dimensions, its applications, what it means to be people oriented toward kingdom come. This morning, though, I want to consider some basic aspects of the how question. The how question. How does the kingdom come? All right, I think that's an important thing to consider. We're going to approach it kind of in a real basic way this morning, I think. Um, but it's important because Christians haven't always, through the, through the centuries, agreed on this. There has been a kind of tension, if you will, between seeing the coming of God's kingdom as God's work versus understanding the coming of God's kingdom as our work. Those have been in tension in the understanding of Christians and the church throughout, uh, throughout the ages. And so we want to consider that, that tension between these two ideas this morning for a few minutes. So let's first of all start by considering the, the, that the, the idea that the coming of God's kingdom is God's work. That, that the kingship of God, the sovereignty, the rule of God is something, in the final analysis, that we just receive. We don't do it or make it happen, we just receive it. Because God is the one who does the work. And there's definitely some biblical support and a lot of biblical support for this idea. Just starting with Matthew 6.10, this is a prayer. We're, we're instructed to petition someone else to bring his kingdom to earth, right? That's the whole orientation here is a supplicant saying to the one who has the kingdom, who is in possession of, this, of said rule, to bring it to where we are. Would you please pray God, please let your kingdom arrive. Let it come. And that whole prayer basically suggests that this is something that at best we can receive. God is the one who has it. He, he has to initiate the movement of his kingdom toward any place. And we're petitioning that it come to earth. And Jesus tells us to do that. So it's a request for something from someone else. Also, you can see this in the question that the disciples asked Jesus shortly before his ascension. Kathy and I were talking about this the other night after Wednesday night Bible study, you ever thought about why they asked this question? Remember, they've been hanging out with Jesus for three plus years. Plus, they have been schooled in their synagogues in what the law and the prophets have taught them. 
Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, I am the fulfillment to the law and the prophets. And their question? Think of all the questions we might ask Jesus from our religious upbringing. Right? Why didn't you say Acts 2.38 15 more times? Why in every context, Jesus, on, on when it's talking about salvation? That really helped me. I have to flip back over there. I'm not going to think of a thousand things we might ask him. Here's what they ask him. After this intimate participation in the life and ministry of Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But I want you to notice, again, this, the orientation here is, this is something, Lord, that you would have to do. Will you do it? He has to restore it. They, the, the language isn't, Lord, we know that we need to restore this. He's asking, when will you restore the kingdom? <clears throat> in fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we read this, Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Not achieving a kingdom. Receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. So, the kingdom of God is something that God's work brings. It's, it's in the capacity of God to bring this about. And the kingdom had to be something achieved by God's power alone, since humans had, had, had abdicated their God-given charge to rule rightly. Um, remember that in the Bible story, <clears throat> this storyline of the Bible, we, we call it timeline. I kind of think of it as a storyline more. It's got plot points. You know, it doesn't have the years and dates and all that. Basically trying to give us the basic, if the, if the Bible were a play, you know, the, the what is it, nine or ten acts that we have of the play or the chapters in the story. Um, at any rate, in the story of the Bible, um, it, it starts off with God giving some of his kingship or, or asking uh, his human creatures, Adam and Eve, to rule with him. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 to 28, which used to be to us like Matthew 6, 9 and 10 is going be, to become, you know. Um, and God created uh, man, male and female created he them, in the image of God made he them, uh, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Some versions say rule over it. Be a co-king with me. God's the king, but he's, he's inviting his human creatures to be co-rulers with him over the rest of creation. That's, that's our introduction to humans in the Bible. Made in the image of God to go out and be God's co-rulers, co-dominion holders over the rest of creation. But what happens? As Greg just pointed out a minute ago, they go from that green leaf, you know, glistening in the sunshine, dripping water and fertility and hope and beauty, to death sin and, and death, the decay represented by the mushroom. Adam and Eve, God's primordial human beings, decide that they can decide for themselves what's right and wrong. We need God to tell us. We don't need to listen to the word of the Lord. We, we can decide be our own standard. And so they ditch the co-part of the co-ruler. We're just going to keep the ruler part, God. You can keep the co-part. And they attempt to rule without God. And the consequences are horrific, right? Social harmony, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is replaced with finger pointing, blame shifting, 
thriving in Eden is replaced with sweat of the brow surviving in the wilds east of Eden. And if you trace really the narrative in Genesis chapter 4 after the fall, up all the way through chapter 11, what do you get? It's just a, a, a story of, of dysfunction and death and disorder. Fratricide, chapter 4. Vengeance rung amok later in chapter 4. Ultimately, a world of just shot through with violence. And this downward spiral culminates in that human self-elevation project on the plains of Shinar. Do you know what I'm talking about? The city and tower of Babel. It's a human self-elevation project. It is an attempt to do humanity and to be a civilization without God. We'll build the tower and the city, and the tower is going to go from the ground up to the heavens. Look what it says in Genesis 11, 1 through 4. The whole earth had one language and the, and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said one to another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. We won't talk about that too much, but we got technology, so we're good, God. That sounds so modern. We've learned how to do bricks, really. That doesn't sound old-timey to us, but we've learned how to do bits and bytes, so be gone. We're the masters of our own fate now. Man, technology is a blessing, but it's also always a leading candidate for our, our idolatry. Anyway... So they said this, here's what we're going to do with all this skill we now have. Come let us build ourselves a city, a civilization, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed. I see two motivations there. One of them is the desire to matter, to count. They, they need some glory. They need some weight. Humanity needs to matter. We can't just be an accident. We need to make a name for ourselves. And secondly, they, they have a need for, for security. Otherwise, we're just going to be dispersed to the four winds, and who knows what will become of us. And so we see here this age-old, or these age-old, God-given longings, perhaps. But the point is, human-centered kingdoms, self-rule projects of any kind, when God's rule is pushed away, they always crumble. That goes for church. That goes for your life. It goes for your family. It goes for your relationship with your work. It goes for your priorities. You're going to figure it out better than God? You can play you know, with fire and not get burned? God knows what He's doing. He made you. He made your family. He gave you the resources you have, just like Adam and Eve. We're going to push Him aside. If so, our lives could look like Babel before we know it. But beginning with Genesis 12... God's not done with His human creation. He's not done with all of His creation. And He says to Abram, this man in Mesopotamia, modern-day Kuwait or Iraq or somewhere like that, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make your name great. Nod back to Genesis 11. I, I, you do matter. But you matter only with respect to your relationship to me. That's what makes you matter. I made you. You can't matter like you want to matter apart from me. There's no human identity or real concept in the Bible of humanity. You know, full-throated, full robust, really being what we're designed to be without God in the picture. 
So we're always trying to pull something off. It's sort of a monster when we push God to the side. We're trying to do something the Bible never even countenances as, as normal. It has no chance of working. The universe and you aren't wired that way. And so God slowly unveils here his plan to restore his rule. This is the heart in our storyline, our timeline, as Greg pointed out a minute ago, and Ellie. It's God restoring his kingship ultimately. You're not in charge. You can't make your own name great. I'm going to make it great. And with that, it's going to come human thriving again through Abraham, through his descendants. There's going to be a land and a nation, the nation of Israel, his descendants, and ultimately through someone, and this is explained, explicated more in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, I believe, where the promise is re- repeated, this covenant is repeated, in, the fa- in, in Abraham's lineage, ultimately a single person from Israel, his offspring, his descendant, all the families or nations of the earth will be blessed. One of Abraham's descendants is an Israelite, this is many years later, an Israelite shepherd boy, little known at the time, apparently, by the name of David. And he's assigned a special role in God's plan. He's anointed king over the Israelites, Abraham's descendants. This is the account of the anointing in 1 Samuel 16. I won't read the whole thing, but they, you know, all these likely candidates, the older and the taller and all this, are, are you know, brought forward, paraded before Samuel, who's going to appoint the king on God's behalf, and anoint the king, rather, on God's behalf. And... Finally, he says, aren't there any more? And they go, well, there's one more. Uh, He's just a kid. He's out keeping the sheep. Pretty lowly profession in the ancient Near East. Samuel says, bring him in. And the Lord said, this is the end of verse 12, arise, anoint him. Anoint him. For this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I want you to zero in on this word, anoint. Very important word in the Bible and in the biblical scheme of redemption. They anoint with oil, as it says, but anointing is the word, the verb form here for our noun, Messiah. Okay? I don't remember the Hebrew verb. Matt would know it right off the bat. What is it? It's like this. Meshach. So the, the anointed one, the one who is the, the recipient of the anointing with oil, who is tapped to be the king, is the Meshiach, the anointed one. And our word for that is Messiah in English. File that away. That's what David is. He is the Meshiach, the anointed one, appointed to be king. But it's the word Messiah if it's the noun recipient of that anointing. And David isn't just any king. Before he dies, he is given another prophetic oration in 2 Samuel 7. When he's told in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, King David, and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is pretty cosmic sounding stuff, right? You're going to die, but my plan isn't, isn't over from your own descendants, I'm going to establish a kingdom and a dynasty, a house, a royal house, verse 13, will be built for my name and I will establish the throne of this figure's kingdom, your descendant, this king from your lineage, from your, in your dynasty. That throne is going to last forever. So whoever rules 
in this capacity that David is being told about in the future is going to rule with justice over God's people into eternity. Wow. How would you like to be told that? And this king, fast-forwarding again in the Bible storyline, is the person we know as Jesus. When you open up the gospel after that 400, you know, some odd years of, of waiting, no, no revelation of scripture, and you read Mark or, or Matthew 1.1 that I'm going to put on the screen here, we're introduced to this figure called Jesus. And I want you to notice how Matthew frames who he is, how he identifies who Jesus is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Bible has a unified storyline. But he calls him Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is from the Greek word. If you were, if you were using Greek and you weren't conversant in Hebrew, like let's say you're one of those translators making the Septuagint translation, a couple hundred years before Christ, down in Egypt. And you're trying to work from Hebrew text so that people in the eastern third of the Mediterranean, eastern half of the Mediterranean can read it too, who, who now speak Greek. The word you're going to use for that word Meshiach, anointed one, is the Greek word Christos, from which we get our English word Christ. So when you see the word Christ in the Bible, here's what you ought to think. Not, hey, I'm, it's Christ. Christ is the name. Jesus. It's not his name. It's not his last name. Jesus Christ, 412-22-7001. It's not, he is Jesus the Christ. It's a title, not a name. And the title means he is the anointed one. This links him with David, ultimately with Abraham. All right? Because this doesn't just come out of the blue. Matthew 1.1 has a, a Hebrew Bible backstory. <laughs> it just does. You're doing it violence if you read it without that backstory in mind. It, it forces you to do that. It says, David and Abraham, who are they? If you're walking around the New Testament, you're probably, who is David and Abraham? This is tapping in. This is continuing a story. It, the Bible doesn't start here. Um, this is the beginning, maybe, of its conclusion in some ways. But Jesus is the Christ. I have a little quote here from a book that Matt suggested we read for this year's theme, which I'm finding really helpful. It's called Why the Gospel? Um, and he, he makes this point, and I think this is something to keep in mind. Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name. Basically, it's saying... The claim is that Jesus is the king, because he's anointed for what? He's anointed like David was anointed, according to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel 7. So it's a claim that's being made. It's not like Rick Helton. It's like if Rick said, started going, I'm Rick the king, and you just changed his name after a while, Rick's like, yeah, pretty well, I could work with that. Over a while, you just drop the the, and you say, well, his last name's king. That is a last name sometimes. But no, that's not what's going on here. It's a claim, not a name. That is, we should never think Jesus Christ is simply his name. It is an assertion about Jesus' identity. In short, what it meant for Jesus to preach the gospel, the good news, the message, was for him to announce that he, not Herod or any of the other kings, claimants to the kingdom all around him, that Jesus was God's anointed king. That's what it means to say he is the Christ. He's the divinely anointed one, like David had been. In other words, he announced and showed that God's new empire, if you like, Maybe his empire of love, instead of an empire of the sword like all the others, was arriving through his own royal presence. 
In fact, we could say with great biblical backing, and we will say it, we've said it already and we will continue to say it, I mean Matt and I, and hopefully in our Bible classes and community groups as well, that from one standpoint, the gospel, the gospel is the news that the true king is here. That's what the gospel is. Some verses actually say that. Gospel is a lot of things because that has a lot of implications and applications. But look at this. This is speaking of Jesus in Matthew 4, 23, early in his ministry. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, not of the forgiveness of sins or 75 other things that are equally biblical, but a thing that's more, more at the heart of what, what's going on, without which you're really going to misdefine all the others, because it's, it's really the pervasive idea. It is the good news of the kingdom that the, tr the earth's true king, long-awaited, prophesied in Scripture, waited for, longed for, prayed for, the world's true king is finally here, and it's great news. That's the gospel. Does it result in you getting your sins free? Of course it does, because that's one of the things that went wrong in the garden. It results in all sorts of stuff. Justice and righteousness and caring about the world around us and all that. Because the, wor the, the world's true king and not all these imposters that we've been living with forever and will continue to live with in some sense, that, that king is here. And he went about, as a result, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So from one angle, it does sound like, doesn't it, that the restoration of the kingdom, the coming or arrival of God's kingdom, had to be God's work. It was a completely divine thing. No scheme or capacity that any human being could come up with or produce or manifest could accomplish this. So we need to keep that in mind. The kingdom of God isn't just social activism. It's, you'll, you'll, there's literature that suggests we're going to go to kingdom work. And it's almost like if we don't do it, it ain't going to get done. And God can be really remote, sometimes absent from that kind of thing. You take the king out of the picture, you're not going to change much. Look at the last two millennia. All the reform projects, they do good, they should be done, but the ones that have the most efficacy are the ones done through and with the power and in the name of, in whatever sense, Jesus. Because the king has to bring his kingdom. All right. On the other hand, is the kingdom also our work? Is the coming of the kingdom, the arrival of God's kingship, at least as God intends it, is it something that involves our actualizing of it? Our enacting it, our embodying it, our doing it? And I think the biblical answer is yes. I want to say there's some tension here in the Bible. We can see the other side of this biblical tension regarding the coming kingdom by looking no further than the text in which Matthew 6.10 comes to us. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. So it is a prayer that suggests the first point that this is God's work and we're asking Him, please bring it. Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. It's yours to dispense. Do it, please. And on the other hand, the very next phrase is, Your will be done on earth. Is that a prayer that God will turn me into a robot? Turn you into a robot? Please let your will be done. Just take me over. You can hope that forever. The Bible indicates that's never going to happen. What that is, is uh, suggests the idea that we've got to get on board with it. 
for his kingdom to come, I've got to let his will be done here where I live on earth. And so do you, and so does this church. That means real things on, in the real world, like family decisions, priorities, commitments, what you're willing to sacrifice for what. That's what that means on the ground, 24-7. Is, is his will being done or my will being done? Am I trusting him or is this more of an Eve move in the garden? Thank you for all the blessings. Now I got it. I'll rule. There won't be consequences. Au contraire, there will be. So, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to bear this out. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Why go on for three long chapters telling us what it looks like when, king, when people are being citizens in the kingdom of Jesus? You get the Beatitudes. Talk about the character traits that we should manifest as kingdom citizens. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to inherit the earth? The powerful and the strong and the mighty, the people with the most swords and guns? No, the meek, actually, are going to inherit the earth. Harking back to Psalm 30-something. Don't remember off the top of my head. But then he starts saying things like this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're not saved by these works. It's like Ephesians 2 that Daniel quoted the other, other uh, night. We're, you know, we're, we're, it's not of works lest we should boast, yet we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're His workmanship so that we might do works. That's not how we got in this relationship, but it's certainly supposed to grow out of it. In the same way, God has to bring His kingdom, but our receiving it does involve responsibility, doing things like good works. And like Matthew, the Gospel of Luke also portrays Jesus' followers in this way as witnesses to His kingdom, as people living out the principles, practicing His kingship. It isn't just some idea for a Bible class or a sermon. It's kingship over me. And when we do that, we are testifying to the reality of the king's rule. Look what Jesus proclaimed at the synagogue where he grew up in Nazareth. He, he arrives one day, you remember, in Luke 4, and the synagogue is, it hands him, it's, I guess they've come in their regiment of things to the scroll of Isaiah. I don't know how, why that was decided upon, but it appears that way. And so they hand it to Jesus. He opens the, the, the scroll and begins to make this point, alluding to a couple of different texts from the prophecy of Isaiah. I want you to think about David, the shepherd boy, and see if you see any resonance between that and this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because He has anointed me. Remember that? David was anointed to be king, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. You think Jews hearing this wouldn't think of that? Jesus is actually claiming to be the Messiah here. And as a result, He's come to do what? Proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. Like This matters for people's income. This isn't, some, this isn't spiritualizable. You can't just go, well, He's talking about spiritual. No, it's just the poor. Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke says the poor. Luke talks a whole lot about our pocketbooks and flesh and blood stuff. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. People who are in jail, in prison. Recovering of sight to the blind. Really blind. Can't see. And to set at liberty the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what the world's true king came to do in the world he created. 
And the apostles are charged to follow him in this kingdom work. In Luke 9, he calls the twelve to him, and it says he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim what? The kingdom of God and to heal. The kingdom of God involves healing. It, it involves addressing real physical problems, people, and spiritual Oh, We're not just disembodied. We're not brains or spirits on sticks. We're not brains on sticks. We're not spirits in bottles, you know. This was made by God, and it was good. Well, yours is good. Mine's not so great. I wish it was like, you know, 6 to 240 pounds of ripped muscle, and I could use my four years of college eligibility still. I still have four years of college eligibility, but I would die in 10 seconds. Anyway, um, I could be Dre Greenlaw, you know, who was a Razorback before he was a 49er. Anyway, um, God isn't, the real king isn't going, just go to church and believe the right doctrines and get baptized for the right reason, and then all the other stuff doesn't matter. Because we're getting out of here anyway, we're going to heaven. Forget all this stuff on earth. What was the earth for? You just make a test stage for us? That's not the biblical narrative at all. It goes from creation to new creation. Stuff matters to God. Matter matters to God. It was Greek Gnosticism which tried to devalue matter and flesh. The Judeo-Christian storyline elevates that. God gave it to you. That's why Jesus says, take care of poor people. Because not being able to eat really matters. He didn't just go, here's a tract. He's going to do that too, because your main problem is your separation from God because of sin. But that's not all they do. And so in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, the whole thing, the whole history of the early church is framed by kingdom language. So in Acts 1, this is what Jesus was doing. Ever wonder, what's he doing in those 40 days before he ascends? You know, after his resurrection and before he ascends to the right hand of God. It says he was presenting himself alive to the disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The very end of Acts, we find Paul, his apostle, imprisoned in Rome or under house arrest in Rome. But he has some capacity, some freedom to teach. And so we read in two different verses in the last, you know, the concluding chapter of Acts, that they had appointed a day for Paul and they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning to evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Trying to convince them about Jesus, the king. From the scriptures, their scriptures, the law and the prophets. That's what they'd always been pointing to, the kingdom. Verse 30, last two verses of the book. He lived there two old years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of, of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus. The story of the church in the Bible, the book of Acts, is framed by kingdom of God language. We can't just ignore that or detach that from its biblical moorings. It has a backstory which defines the terms and what kingdom work looks like. But here's the upshot of this point. We, the church of King Jesus, we cannot just resign ourselves to the way things are. Right? If on the one hand, as our first point concluded, we can't bring the kingdom in through our own capacity and ingenuity and activism, it's God's to give, it's, and, and we have to receive it. But receiving it, 
doesn't mean we can just resign ourselves to going, well then, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and wait. Perhaps throwing in a pious sounding, well, God's in control. I found that that's a trump card often to sort of get me off the hook. God's in control, true. How does He control in the Bible? How does He execute that control? Does He say, don't do anything, I got everything. I don't think we believe that about how a person's saved. Of course, you, you're not going to be saved without the sacrifice of, of, of Christ on the cross. But the devils believe and tremble. They're not saved. You've got to believe. That's a you thing. You've got to repent and be baptized, Peter said in Acts 2.38. None of that negates that it wouldn't be. That's not the big story. The big story is what God did, but that's part of it. Because we're not robots. So how do we resolve this tension? Resignation isn't the answer. Ah, just wait on God. How do we resolve the tension between the coming of the kingdom being a matter of the work of God on the one hand and having to do with our work on the other? I want to have us keep two things in mind that can help clarify this before we actually address it. One is an, there's an agency issue in play, an agency issue, and there's a timing issue that I think often get forgotten and, and things get conflated pretty quickly. What do I mean by agency issue? Who, by whose power um, does the kingdom come? By whose agency? Well, the kingdom comes by God's power, by God's agency. But it's also true biblically that God brings the kingdom to us in a way that invites our participation with His power. It, there wouldn't be anything to participate in if it weren't for the power of God, but then we're invited to be participants in this ruling or kingship. I mean, that's how the book starts, the Bible starts, Genesis 1.28. We're made in the image of God to do what? Rule. Have dominion. It's like the first page of the Bible. God is going, I want to share my ruler capacity with you, my kingship. I want you to be my co-ruler. Revelation 22.5, one of the last verses of the Bible says that we will rule with God forever in the new creation. So that's the storyline. God's power, to be sure. There'd be nothing to participate in without God's power. That brings the kingdom. But there's a sense in which if we refuse to participate in it, we're not allowing Him to bring it in the way that He would like at least. So that's the agency issue we've got to keep straight. Okay? Whose power, you know, in our role is participation. Then there's a time element a timing element about the kingdom's coming that we have to be straight on too. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with Christ's work on earth, but it wasn't yet fully consummated. It was inaugurated with the teachings of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ especially, but not fully consummated. And that explains how humans can be utterly dependent upon God for our rescue, for bringing heaven's rule down to earth. Totally dependent on Him. That's a gift but also still be given kingdom work to do until eternity arrives, until it's consummated. Both and, not either or, is my point. Like a lot of things in the Bible, when there's a tension, often the answer is more of a both and than an either or. And so you get people running and getting their verses, and they start a denomination based on these six verses and ignore those or explain them away or just don't even know they're in there because the preachers don't talk about them. Another denomination does the opposite. Then there's somebody else trying to do a third thing. The whole counsel of God. The sum of God's word is our truth. 
And so the kingdom coming is both God's work and our work. And I don't mean by that, extreme caveat here, underscore, bold, 50 font, not saying it's 50-50. It's not God reaches down and we reach up. We meet in the middle. No, no, no. We can't even reach when the story starts. Our hands are like T-Rex hands. Right? It's like, okay, I got it, I got it. It's not even above your snout, dude. What were those for? I need to talk to a paleontologist. What in the world? Um, anyway, that's how we are in, in the Bible. We're, we're, we have no capacity. We, we are, you know, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have gone astray, all that stuff from, in Romans 3 that's quoted from the Psalms. It isn't some contract across the table. It's a very asymmetrical relationship, God and us, don't you think? Jake shared with me in a, in a blog that he wrote that we'll probably talk about this idea, this metaphor, and what metaphors are the good ones to use here. But I think this is a really good one. Jake says he got it somewhere and forgot where he got it, but that means in my mind Jake made it up. That's originality, what it really is, lack of memory. It's, that it's like a treehouse. You know, the dad starts building the treehouse. The father says, hey, let's, we're going to build a treehouse. We've got nails and hammers and saws and levels and all the stuff. And the kids are getting to participate. Now, the kids are going to do some silly things. They're going to put 75 nails in a square inch. They're going to have bloodied thumbs. They're going to you know, use the level as something else, hit each other with it, and it's going to be all out of square. God is building it, but He's building it in such a way that includes the mistake-prone brokenness of humans. And it shows His love. And one day it'll be perfect. But even then, we will have a role as His children. His treehouse, His power, His ingenuity, His idea, His invitation, all Him. But He chose to invite us to have a role in it. And that's why just saying every time you get in a pickle or don't want to deal with something or you watch something depressing on the news, well, God's got it. God's in control. It's true, but He charges you to do something about it. That's the nature of His kingdom and His kingship. And so I want to close with this idea that the kingship of God, when it comes, it also means that we've got to accept and adopt and live out the king's mission in the world. We have a mission. Remember, I'm going to skip this, but do you remember uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18? You ever heard of that verse? You said it and heard me say it 50 million times in the last year. We're ministers of reconciliation. Remember how that verse starts and kind of ends? It talks about how we were reconciled. Because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf as He hung on the cross. We were all reconciled. We are a new creation. Something new, radically new, from out of the blue, from heaven, has begun to transform us. But opened up to us a whole new reality. Right? If anyone is in Christ, the literal translation is new creation. It's like, I need to look at a French translation... Sean Lawler gave me a French translation of the Bible a few years ago. I need to look at it. I bet it just says, voila, new creation. You know, there it is. Voila means there it is. Or whoop, there it is. 
maybe. I don't know. That, that, we, we've entered that new reality, and, it, and it's in us as well. So we need to keep in mind, how, how, how big was the scope of this reconciliation project for, for the kingdom, for the king? Because that's how big our scope is. Here we go. Paul says, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. The whole project, in a sense, rejected or suffered the rejection of God's rule over it, God's benevolent rule, when we abdicated, because God was going to rule through us, largely. Genesis 1, 27, 28, at least in part. So when we said no, we basically said to the creation, you're on your own too. Really selfish. Really selfish. And cowardly and all kinds of dastardly stuff is what that is. So, when you're called into a new creation relationship and reality, serving the king, the true rightful king of the world who's come to set it right, your mission is his mission. It's as broad and as deep and as multifaceted as his is. We don't get to go, I'm only going to work this little bitty part right here. The rest of it, who cares? And that's what, honestly, evangelical Christians have been doing for a long time in America. The mission of King Jesus is to restore all things on heaven and earth to the way God originally intended. Where there is now hatred between humans, He would bring harmony. Where there is alienation between humans and the physical creation, Jesus, the new Adam, the second Adam, the Bible says, the image bearer who was supposed to take care of creation, He would have us live as loving stewards again. Where we ourselves are internally fragmented, psychological messes, all of us, because of our fever dream of autonomy and self-rule. That's what it is. It's a delusion. Jesus comes to restore to us our truest selves by reconciling us to God in whose image we were designed. And all that we do as Christ's kingdom people should reflect that mission. There's a lot of ways to talk about the mission of this church or the church of the Lord in general. From the kingdom angle, I want to suggest this. Our mission, in light of the Bible's kingdom theme, these are just my words, trying to sum up this. As participants with Jesus in His kingdom, the church anticipates its future consummation by forsaking self-rule for God's rule and practicing the reconciliation and renewal in all aspects of life on earth that we read He came to do. How could it be otherwise, biblically? We're going to have a shepherd's deacons meeting February 10th at our house. There's breakfast. I'm supposed to announce that. I'll go right now. We're going to, Shree, Shree and Kathy, I think, are doing breakfast for us. I want all the deacons to be thinking about their roles in light of this kingdom mission. And beyond that, think about our relationships as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and fellow church members and citizens in our community and voters and employers, and employees, and neighbors, and friends. In what way? If everything is to be reconciled and renewed according to the king who made it, the thriving that he intended for us in the garden, what kind of changes should I make? How should my priorities look different? Maybe I make some new choices and decisions that I wasn't making last year. Maybe I've kind of drifted away. There's a little bit of self-rule creeping in there, and I need more of God's rule. 
That's all we can do as Christ's kingdom people is to reflect His mission as best we can. Add our little nail to the treehouse. And if it's a little bit crooked, the Father's going to fix it. He bought the stuff for the treehouse. He showed up at breakfast and had the idea. He invited you to come and play along. It'll be okay. What's not okay is to say, I'm not doing it. Or I'm doing it, but I don't need you. I'll end with a piece that Jake sent me from an, an N.T. Wright article. In it, the author, N.T. Wright, is responding to those who've accused him of implying, they say, you, you've implied that we humans can usher in the kingdom of God all by our own power and skill. Here's what he says in reply to that. I think there's a lot of good in this, and then we'll stop for the morning. Though the work, I'm sorry, not though, through the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, God equips humans to help in the work of getting the project back on track. So the objection about us trying to build God's kingdom by our own efforts, though it seems humble and pious, can actually be a way of hiding from responsibility and keeping one's head down when the boss is looking for volunteers. What you do in the present, notice this, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, working in hospitals, till you're just ground down to nothing and your family needs you. Digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of that, none of it's going to be lost on God. It will last into God's future. These activities are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. We're not building His kingdom, but we're building for that kingdom which will be consummated in eternity in the new heavens, new earth. By such labors, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. And that's because of the eschatology, the end times theology of many people in conservative religious circles in the last two or three hundred years. That's why this doesn't make much sense, because we, they do kind of think, this is just going to roll over a cliff anyway. You can do whatever you want to it. And all this stuff. God's got it. None of it matters. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> You're not getting, that's coming from somewhere else. And we're input, you know, we impose it over the scriptures and, and start pro, you know, procrustean you know, forcings of the things into categories they never were meant to be in. It's not going to roll over. The creation is going to be fixed and turned into the new creation. He's going to get rid of all the dross for sure, 2 Peter 3 says. But 2 Peter 3 says, we wait for a new heavens and new earth. Even that text says that. So, here's his point. You're accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. All of that will, will last. And I think that's why we read in Isaiah 60, which gets picked up in the picture of the new heavens, new earth in Revelation 22, that all the products and cultural products of the, the nations around the world are going to be brought to the King, Jesus, to the throne of the Lamb, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, new earth. It doesn't just say none of that will matter anymore. It actually mentions those nations. I don't know how much of that's metaphorical, but neither do you. <laughs> that's the language, though. That's the idiom that, that God chose to tell us about it in. Anyway, we'll talk more about all that later. I'm way off my notes here. So, that's what we're going to conclude with. That There's this idea that a new creation, biblical idea, biblical claim, a new creation is on the way already been launched in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been launched in you if you've been baptized into Him. 
as a believer who wants His kingship over your life. He is Christ, the Christ, the anointed King. In this new year, brothers and sisters, let's resolve to see everything we do, every choice we make, huh? every priority that we honor and establish, all of those in the light of the kingdom mission that our King invites us to participate in with Him. Amen? Thanks a lot for your attention.